great to see you, Purpose Church. Today we're going to be looking at biblical justice and see how it compares to the different secular theories of justice that are in our culture and in our society today. But in order to get to our discussion on justice, I want to just look at a principle that we find in our passage today from Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse through it like we've done in past weeks or in future weeks, but instead I want to use it as a launching pad for a modern parallel to what was going on in the church at Colossae that Paul was writing to the Colossians about. Uh, Here's the biblical principle uh, from Colossians that we want to apply uh, to the modern situation with regard uh, to uh, the theories of justice uh, today. False teaching takes something good and bends it in a false direction. False teaching takes something that's good and bends it in a false direction. One of the reasons that Paul wrote to the Colossians was to combat a false teaching, we've talked about it for a few weeks now, called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was characterized by three things. Uh, Number one was legalism, which was an excessive adherence to the law. Another was mysticism, which is becoming one with God. Another was asceticism, which is an avoidance of all forms of indulgence. Sometimes people would whip themselves or or, or not uh, eat certain things or or fast for long periods of time and not indulge in any form of indulgence. Now these are all good things that got bent in a false direction. All of these are good things uh, that God has given to us, gifts he's given to us, good things, but things that got bent by the false teachers in a false direction. Number one, legalism. Uh, As we see in verses 16 and 17, legalism takes the desire to do the right thing and bends it to judgmentalism. So doing the right thing, that's a good thing, but bends it to judgmentalism, which is not a good thing. Uh, Number two, uh, mysticism. You'll see if you read verses 18 and 19, and I encourage you to read this passage. It takes the desire to connect with God and bends it to pride. So wanting to connect with God, that's a good thing, but bending it towards pride, that's not a good thing. And then the third one that you'll read about in verses 20 through 23 is asceticism. Takes the desire to be disciplined, that's a good thing, and bends it to bondage or or to enslavement, which is a bad thing. And so again, this principle that we're seeing in our passage when you read it through uh, from Colossians is that false teaching takes something good and bends it in a false uh, direction. Now, Gnosticism uh, was a good first century example of this. And secular theories of justice today are good 21st century examples of this. Uh, A desire to implement justice is very, very, very good. What what could be a a more wholesome and wonderful and and good uh, desire than to implement justice in the world? That's something good. But when it's bent in a false direction, uh, that's when we get some of the uh, impact that we'll be talking about here today. Uh, and so when it's bent in the wrong direction, it can, it can lead to judgmentalism, which is just another word for cancel culture. Uh, judgmentalism of the past is what we would call cancel culture uh, today. It can lead to pride. Uh, it can lead to a work salvation. Uh, just in the same way it did with Gnosticism in the first century, uh, so these secular theories of justice can do today. Now, this is a very controversial subject. 
and I am not going to get this perfect. I guarantee you, I am not going to get this perfect. I do not expect you to agree, to agree with everything I'm going to say. As a matter of fact, if you're watching this with somebody else right now, just turn to the person uh, next to you and say, I do not expect to agree with everything that Glenn is going to say today. You might even turn to that person and also say, I expect Glenn to say something that will annoy me today. Just say that to the person next to you. But uh, I will forgive him because I love him so, so, so much. You don't have to put that last part in there. But the enemy of the good is the perfect. And so if, if we wait until I get this perfect or until we can have a perfect, perfect uh, discussion or perfectly balanced discussion on this, we'll just never get around to talking about it. And we believe here at Purpose Church in taking on, tackling even the toughest of subjects. And so we're going to tackle it today, even though I'm sure it will be an imperfect attempt, but maybe it'll get us uh, discussing and having dialogue about it. Now, I'm a big fan of a pastor by the name of Tim Keller. And, uh, and we've got some uh, connections here with these three men that you'll see in front of you. And that is that Tim Keller, he mentored my uh, best friend in seminary, best man in Kimberly in my uh, wedding. Uh, he was my seminary roommate uh, for a couple of years, uh, John Hanford. So Tim Keller mentored uh, my best friend, uh, John Hanford, who eventually became uh, the second uh, United States Ambassador of Religious Freedom uh, from the State Department. And so uh, t John went and lived with Tim Keller for about three years and his wife and family to be mentored by him. Then Tim Keller's best friend was David Midwood. And David Midwood, when I was in seminary, every weekend I would live with him and his wife for three years to be mentored by David Midwood. So uh, Tim Keller's best friend, David Midwood, mentored me. And then Tim Keller mentored my best friend, John Hanford. And so there are just some wonderful memories as to how God used those relationships in my past that, that really just helped me a lot as a young pastor uh, starting out. Well, here's Tim Keller's introduction to an article he wrote, and the name of the article was A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory, and I'm going to be using that uh, some here uh, today. And his uh, introduction to this really just summarizes what I'm trying to accomplish uh, here in this study. In the Bible, Christians have an ancient, rich, strong, comprehensive, complex, and attractive understanding of justice. Biblical justice differs in significant ways from all the secular alternatives without ignoring the concerns of any of them. Yet Christians know little about biblical justice, despite its prominence in the scriptures. This ignorance is having two effects— First, large swaths of the church still do not see, quote, doing justice as part of their calling as individual believers. Second, many younger Christians, recognizing this failure of the church and wanting to rectify things, are taking up one or another of the secular approaches to justice, which introduces distortions into their practice and into their lives. And that just summarizes what I'm trying to do. My goal today it's for those of us of the older generation, I'll include myself in that, that we would stretch ourselves a little bit and realize that doing justice is a bigger theme in the scriptures, in the Bible, than we realize. I 
I can hardly remember a sermon on it when, uh, growing up. And yet huge portions of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament prophets, are devoted to this subject. And yet we, we just never really talked about it all that much. So I'm hoping to stretch the older generation, including myself, to see a little bit more about how this is a major theme in Scripture. But then, uh, for those of the younger generation, uh, biblical uh, justice, I want to convince you, is by far the best approach. It's God's approach to justice because it addresses, as Tim Keller said, all the major concerns. And each one of the other theories of justice that we're going to talk about today, they all have good concerns. They come from a good place, a good motivation. But biblical justice answers all of their concerns. It incorporates all of their concerns without some of the negatives that come along with them. Now, let's start by looking at five characteristics of biblical justice. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at biblical justice because, you know, just like the FBI, uh, when they want to find out counterfeit bills, $100 bills, uh, what do they do? They don't look at counterfeits. They look at the real thing. And they spend most of their time looking at the real thing, feeling the real thing, touching it, looking at it, even smelling it, uh, handling it. And so we're going to spend most of our time talking about the biblical characteristics, the five characteristics of biblical justice, and then I want to compare it to some of the other theories uh, that are out there. Uh, there's this great quote I want to start with by Sunday Adelaja. And what a, what a cool guy is he is. He's, he's a Nigerian megachurch pastor in the Ukraine. How cool is that? Uh, I didn't even know they had megachurches in the Ukraine. But he's a Nigerian megachurch pastor in the Ukraine. He says, and I love this quote, men of honor and women as well. Uh, men of God, women as well. Men of honor, men of God in a healthy society stand in defense of justice. This is what uh, God has, uh, has called us uh, to do. Uh, now, the first character trait of biblical justice is community. And I love this quote by Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, in which he basically summarizes the difference in the book of Proverbs between the righteous and the wicked. This, this one quote here uh, summarizes for the whole book of Proverbs uh, the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, God challenges us to be a community that's concerned for each other. He says in verses 17 through 22, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow." When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, the second character trait of biblical justice is fairness. Everyone must be treated equally and with dignity. Leviticus 24, verse 22, you are to have the same law for the foreigner and and for the native born. 
Isaiah 33, verse 15, those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes. Why was God very concerned about bribes? You you read about it a lot uh, in the Bible. What's the big deal with bribes? Well, you see, bribes lead to a lack of fairness. Those that have money can get things done uh, more so than those that don't have money. And that's why God was so against bribes in the Bible. Leviticus 19, verse 13. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Why would that be important? Well, they lived hand to mouth. Each day, a a typical worker of that time would get up in the morning, they'd work, they'd get paid, they'd feed their family, uh, and then they'd go to bed and repeat it all again the next day. And so uh, here was a biblical principle, don't hold back the wages uh, overnight, because otherwise that uh, worker and his family are going to go to bed hungry that night if you did that. A third uh, biblical trait of uh, justice, biblical justice, was corporate responsibility. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Now, this is a hard one for us because we're independent Americans, all right? And we, we stand on our own two feet and we're kind of individualistic. But it's very much a biblical principle. This is a very uh, clear-cut biblical principle. I am sometimes responsible for and involved in other people's sins. Uh, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel repents for sins committed by his ancestors, even though there is no evidence that he personally participated in those sins. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 21, God holds Israel responsible for injustice done to the Gibeonites by King Saul, even though by this time, King Saul was already dead. Uh, Numbers chapter 16, God holds whole families, uh, the family of Korah. He's the one that sinned, and yet they held his whole uh, family responsible for the sin of one member of that family. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and Deuteronomy 23, God holds the members of the current generation of a pagan nation, uh, the Canaanites, responsible for the sins committed by their ancestors many generations before. Now, why was this the case? Um, Three reasons. Uh, First of all, corporate responsibility. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan's family did not do the stealing, but they helped him become the kind of man who would steal. Uh, Corporate uh, participation. Uh, Sinful actions not only shape us, but they also shape the people around us. That's why in the middle of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 5, God says, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now look how merciful God is. There's an echo effect of of sin uh, down through three and four generations, but look look uh, how God is so merciful on the other side. But showing love to a thousand generations, not three or four, but a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my uh, commandments. But corporate participation, sinful actions, and actually acts of obedience not only shape us, but they shape people around us as well. And then institutional sin. Uh, Institutions can either build good systems or evil systems into their way of doing life. This is true for institutions, it's true for churches, it's true for for nations. Uh, For example, I believe that the reason our church is still thriving after 150 years 
is because of healthy systems and healthy approaches and, and, and healthy things that were built in uh, to the life of our church. Let me give you one example. Uh, some churches are known among pastors as uh, pastor-eating churches. Uh, there's some churches like, hey, don't go and pastor that church. That's a pastor-eating church. They just have this thing that goes through generations of just destroying pastors that come to lead there. Uh, so some churches are known as pastor-eating churches, and some uh, churches are known as pastor-blessing churches. Well, Purpose Church is a pastor-blessing church. Do you know that the average tenure for the last uh, seven pastors at our church is 13 years? For the last seven pastors, the average tenure is 13 years, and the average tenure for the last three pastors is 22 years. Uh, that is practically unheard of. Just, just, just a wonderful legacy of these long-term pastorates that, are, that our church has had. Uh, now, there are other examples of institutional uh, sin uh, in the Bible. They include the criminal justice systems. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Now, when it talks about don't show partiality, this is legal partiality to the poor, and don't show legal favoritism to the great. Um, but later on, we're going to see in just a minute, we are to have special concern for the poor. We're not supposed to have legal partiality in making decisions, but we are to have special concern for the poor, as we're going to see in just a moment. Another example in the Bible is unfair business practices. Unfair business practices. Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing and not paying them for their labor. In James chapter 5, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Let me tell you a story from my own personal life. I was born into institutionalized sin. You say, Glenn, what are you talking about? Well, I was born, 1956, in a hospital in Petersburg, Virginia, and Petersburg, Virginia is predominantly black. Um, even today, it is, is probably the highest percentage of African Americans of any city in the entire state of Virginia. And that's where I was born, in a hospital in Petersburg, Virginia. But when my parents drove me home from the hospital, they drove the three miles from the hospital to my home, they drove the three miles across uh, a bridge, across the Appomattox River, into Colonial Heights, Virginia which was nicknamed Colonial Whites. Instead of Colonial Heights, Virginia, it was nicknamed Colonial Whites because it was 100% white. And the reason for that was because of a deal made by the realtors to not sell a home in Colonial Heights, to not sell a home to a black family. Uh, it's a practice uh, called redlining. Now later, my parents moved our family to Prince George, Virginia, and we went to church in Hopewell, Virginia, uh, which both of those had a very similar demographic makeup um, to Purpose Church. But that was an example of institutionalized uh, sin. Another example of institutionalized sin is abortion. Uh, a friend sent me this meme just this past week. Why is a bacteria considered life on Mars 
when a prenatal heartbeat is not considered life on earth. My goodness, is that powerful. And so we're trying to convince people that life begins at conception. But there's also an institutionalized aspect uh, to this as well. Uh, Kelly Hamron uh, writes, those among my fellow believers who oppose abortion are already recognizing that sin and its effects can be addressed on both personal and societal levels. Meeting with a desperate woman outside a clinic and convincing her not to end her baby's life is addressing it at the individual level. But many who reach out to prospective patients outside clinics also campaign for legal protections for the unborn and support clinics that provide desperate women with other options, resources, counseling, and support. Other systemic changes might involve better guarantees for parental leave, stronger incentives for paternal involvement or financial support, and funding for adoptive and social service venues. Uh, Now, a fourth character trait of uh, biblical justice is uh, individual responsibility. I am finally responsible for all my sins but not for all of my outcomes. I'm finally responsible for all my sins, but not for all of my outcomes. First of all, my outcomes. Do you know the Bible does not teach that your success or failure is wholly due to individual choices? Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, Now, sometimes it is, uh, our our failure is because of individual choices. Uh, Proverbs uh, 6, verse 6 says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. So sometimes our individual success is determined by our individual uh, choices, our success or our failure. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 21, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them with rags. Uh, So sometimes it is our individual choices. But other times it's because of outside factors uh, that are beyond our control. Uh, Things like famine or plague or sheer injustice. In Proverbs 13, verse 23, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Uh, God talked to the Israelites through Moses in Exodus 22, verse 21. Do not mistreat or uh, oppress a foreigner. Uh, Do not, uh, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Do not, if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in when they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And so with regard to our outcomes, uh, the Bible says that sometimes it's a result of individual choices, but sometimes it's a result, uh, our success or failure, on things that are outside of our control. But when it comes to my sins, in the Bible there's this balance between corporate and individual responsibility. But when it comes to our sins, now we are personally responsible before God. Ezekiel chapter 18, a whole chapter of the Bible is devoted to this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. 
And then the fifth character trait of, of biblical justice is advocacy. We must have special concern for the poor and for the marginalized. Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Psalm 41, verse 1, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in their times of trouble. Uh, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and defend the rights of the needy as well. Uh, Jeremiah 22, verse 3, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor. Zechariah 7, verse 9, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Now, with the time that we have left, I want to compare biblical justice to four uh, secular justice theories. Now, unlike Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, wrote about this from his letters from a Birmingham jail, um, he wrote about the fact that all of this flows out of God's word, the Bible, and all these uh, moral absolutes and these principles of justice flow out of God's word. But unlike Martin Luther King Jr., all these theories we're going to look at assume that there are no moral absolutes on which to base justice, and that they, there is no God, so the definition of justice must be invented by human beings. It doesn't come externally from God or transcendently from God. It is something that we come up with uh, on our own. And here's a chart that kind of gives you an overview of these. Uh, there's a continuum from individualism as taught by John Locke and David Hume. You are holy, you are completely the product of your individual choices. And it goes to the other extreme of collectivism, which was uh, taught by Karl Marx. You are wholly the product of social forces and structures. So along that continuum from individualism to collectivism is first of all libertarian and liberal. Now by the way, I'm not talking here about political libertarian and political liberals. It's just great to be a libertarian or a liberal. Uh, but what I'm talking about here is when they, uh, the technical terms for alternatives, secular, non-God-centered alternatives to biblical justice that leave God out of the equation. That's what I'm talking about here. So libertarian, justice is basically about freedom. Liberal uh, is justice is basically about fairness. Then utilitarian, justice is basically about happiness. And postmodern or critical theory, justice is basically uh, about power. So let's take these one by one and do just a very, very brief and uh, superficial biblical critique of each one. First of all, libertarian, uh, which is about freedom, a just society promotes individual freedom. Uh, Tim Keller writes, the Bible balances individual freedom with community obligation. Now this view denies the doctrine of the universality of sin uh, because it says if we can just have people have complete freedom, particularly from the government, if we have complete freedom, uh, then everything's gonna be okay. But we forget how universal and how widespread sin is in each one of our hearts and we often use our freedom to sin. How many of you have ever used your freedom to sin? I've got my hand up on that one. This view's understanding of absolute rights 
over property and over self does not square with the Bible's view of creation. This whole idea, I own it all. It's all mine. All property is mine. My, myself, it's, it's, it's all about me. Uh, the, God says that he owns it all. We don't own it all. He owns it all. Uh, God owns it all, not us. Uh, then the second uh, secular theory is called the liberal one, which is all about fairness. A just society promotes fairness for all. Now, here are some of the critiques of that. If justice is just honoring individual rights and entitlements, and there are no higher moral absolutes, how can we decide matters when rights or claims conflict with each other and contradict as they often do? And then, along with that, the insistence that religious views stay out of public discourse is hypocritical. There's this whole idea that you can come up with with clear-cut ethics apart from God and apart from God's word. And it is absolutely impossible. I believe it is impossible to come up with morals and ethics apart from God. I mean, apart from God, we are left with survival of the fittest. And I've seen all kinds of efforts to come up with morals and come up with ethics apart from God, but they just don't make any sense. They don't have anything to stand on because if there is no God, we're left with survival of the fittest. And uh, where is justice for the oppressed in survival of the fittest? Apart from God, survival of the fittest. Just do whatever is best for you. And who cares about those that are weaker? Who cares about those that are more vulnerable? Who cares about the oppressed? It is only when God enters the, the, the picture. It's only when God gives us in his word and challenges us to be concerned about the oppressed. That is what motivates us to live in a certain way and gives us absolute truth leading to absolute morals and absolute uh, ethics. Then the third secular view is utilitarian, which has to do with happiness. A just society maximizes happiness for the greatest number of, of people. Now here's the problem with that, the biblical critique of that. Without a doctrine of creation, this view does not honor individuals as having a dignity that must not be violated. Uh, just because the majority of the people are happy does not mean that the rights of the minorities have been protected. Just whatever makes the majority happiest uh, will not necessarily protect even that lone individual that is the most vulnerable. Uh, another critique is without a doctrine of sin, it naively assumes that what will make the majority happy can't be something that's evil. And we absolutely know that that's true. The majority can be wrong. Um, assuming that what will make the majority happy can't be something evil. Uh, for example, in, in American history, uh, putting a minority of people into slavery in America led to prosperity for the majority, but it was still evil even though it led to the benefit of the majority on the, on the backs and the efforts and the labor and the enslavement and the slavery of the minority. And so putting a minority of, of people into that situation for the benefit of the majority, it was still an evil practice. Uh, taking the lives of a minority of the unborn may seem like it leads to the well-being of the majority, but it is still evil to do so. Now, uh, let's just spend a little bit more time that we have left 
uh, with the fourth um, um, theory, which is just exploding on the scene today. If you haven't already heard about it, you will hear about it. If you're in education, you have most likely heard about this, which is postmodern or sometimes called critical theory, has to do with power. A just society subverts the power of dominant groups in favor of the oppressed. Now, the first biblical critique of this is that it is deeply incoherent. It claims that the less power you have, the more clearly you can see truth. But if all truth claims and justice agendas are socially constructed to maintain power, then why aren't the claims and agendas of the adherents of this view subject to the same critique? Uh, Tim Keller writes, you cannot insist that all morality is culturally constructed and relative and then claim that your moral claims are not. And once the powerless get power, wouldn't they now also be blinded by their power? Uh, let me just give you a couple of examples. One for the older generation, one for uh, the younger generation. For the older generation, uh, just pick any communist revolution. That's all you have to do to get an example of once the powerless get power, they are then blinded by that power. Just, just pick any of the communist revolutions that you've seen during your lifetime. Let's pick the most famous one. The Romanov royal family of Russia, uh, they were not the greatest people. They didn't have concern for the poor of their country. They didn't have concern for justice like they should have had. They weren't the greatest people. But you have a Russian revolution, a communist revolution, and you replace them with Lenin and Stalin, who then went about killing up to 70 million of their own people. So the, the cure becomes worse than the problem that you had to begin with. Those that took power now were far worse, a thousand times worse, uh, than were the people that they replaced. So for the older generation, just think of any communist revolution. For the younger generation, think Hunger Games, okay? Think of the Hunger Games. Katniss Ever Everdeen, she leads a revolt against the unjust President Snow, and in the process, he's replaced with President Coyne, who ends up being just as bad as President Snow. So another uh, problem and critique of uh, critical theory and of uh, postmodern theory is it denies our common sinfulness. Justice groups are assigned higher or lower moral value depending on their power. And some groups are denied any redeeming characteristics at all. And so whenever you see whole races as more sinful and evil than other races, it leads to things uh, like the Holocaust. Uh, another problem is that it makes forgiveness, peace, and reconciliation between groups impossible. Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who has had a front seat for uh, exactly what he's talking about with all the, the problems and the wars in that part of the world. Uh, such a great quote here. Forgiveness flounders, that is it fails, because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Could I repeat that? Forgiveness flounders or it fails because, or it's impossible because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. 
And then a, a final critique is it is prone to domination. Uh, this theory sees liberal values such as uh, freedom of speech and freedom of religion as mere ways or tools to oppress people. And this is what leads to the cancel culture uh, that we see today. Adherents of this theory resort to constant expressions of anger and outrage in order to silence their critics, as well as to censorship and other kinds of social, economic, and legal pressure to marginalize opposing views. Uh, so let's wrap it up by comparing biblical justice to the alternatives. Number one, only biblical justice addresses all the concerns of justice found across the other views, and, and they're legitimate concerns. All those views, um, uh, libertarian and, and, and liberal and utilitarian and uh, postmodern, they all have legitimate concerns. The power, the abuse of power, and oppression that comes from power. The, these are all very, very legitimate, but only biblical justice addresses all the concern, concerns found across all these alternative uh, views at the same time. Uh, number two, Biblical justice has a built-in safeguards against domination. And then number three, only biblical justice offers a radically subversive understanding of power. And it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus gives us that radically subversive understanding of power. Monica Johnson writes, Jesus not, is not only the Son of God, but he is God himself. Having all power in his hands, he laid down his life for people who deserve God's justice and not his mercy. Uh, let's end with Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And all God's family said, Amen. And amen.